they really want to be able to get what's in their brain out and prioritize it in a way that makes sense and set some goals and milestones for those goals and actually reach them and have a way of seeing that because I think a lot of times we don't get ourselves give ourselves enough credit for the things that we do finish right there's a lot of shame around unfinished projects hello and welcome to the women in ADHD podcast I am your host Katie Weber the following is from a review on Apple Podcasts from M. Woody 27 recently diagnosed. I'm a recently diagnosed ADHDer and I've always had a sense of loneliness, even when surrounded by people, because my brain just works differently. I feel so much less lonely getting to listen to this podcast and hearing how I'm not alone in how I operate. I'm feeling so very thankful for this pod, the host and guests. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm super thankful for you and your feedback, and I'm also so grateful for these guests who come and share their stories because I also benefit so much from listening to these stories. And as you all know, with ADHD, we need constant validation and feedback. So if you've been listening to these stories and you're loving this podcast, please take a few moments to leave a review or a rating. You can do it on Apple Podcasts, you can do it over on Audible. Uh, or simply go to my website at womenandadhd.com slash episodes and leave me a review there. Okay, let's dive into episode 28, in which I interview Lisa Piana. Lisa is a coach specializing in organizing solutions for moms with ADHD. She considers herself a natural born organizer with a really messy brain. As a quote unquote organizing junkie, Lisa has spent most of her adult life researching popular strategies on how to organize a home, manage time, and be more productive. Unfortunately, these strategies never quite fit the unique challenges she was experiencing as a woman running a home, a family, a business, because she was doing it all with an ADHD brain. So Lisa did what Lisa does, and she designed her own system. She founded Ordered Organizing, where she coaches moms with ADHD on how to organize the thoughts in their brains so that they can stop feeling paralyzed and move into action. Lisa lives in Southern California with her husband of 17 years and her two middle school aged children. We talk all about the various messes in our lives from messy household spaces to organized chaos to feeling pressure to be organized as mothers. We also talk about hyperactive brains and the need for rest and how all of this combined has an enormous effect on our feelings of self-worth as women and as moms. I was instantly drawn to Lisa when she first held a time management workshop in the Female Entrepreneurs Facebook group. And after I reached out to her, I just like immediately felt like I was chatting with a dear old friend. She's so warm and personable and endlessly interesting. If you are a mom who has felt overwhelmed by the various messes in your life, you are really going to enjoy this interview with Lisa. Thank you, Lisa, for joining me. I'm very excited to hear about your story and your and your background and, um, and kind of a little bit more about who you are. So... Why don't we start with um, what, you know, when was, what made you first think you had ADHD and when was that and kind of what led up to your own diagnosis? Um, I never thought I had ADHD. It's not something that ever crossed my mind. You know, it wasn't until I was um, well into adulthood, probably after I had children that I 
would jokingly talk about ADHD. Oh, I'm so ADHD because I forgot this appointment or I can't find my keys or I'm late again, you know, um, I lose track of my thoughts in the middle of conversation. So I was aware of those kinds of things. And, you know, um, I've always been a relatively high achiever. I did well in school. I have an engineering degree. I had a successful 15 year career in architectural lighting design. And so to me, like everybody else who knows very little about ADHD, I always thought that this was a problem that kids had and it was a behavioral issue. It was one, you know, it was one that could be overcome with behavioral changes. And so I never really related it to myself until I think motherhood in particular, not the parenting part, but the having children in the home part, having to manage all of that, all of those growing people and all the responsibility that comes with it. I was getting, accumulating a lot of evidence that this may be an issue. So when my husband came to me and says, hey, I was having this conversation with somebody about how your phone is always dead or I can't reach you because your phone is in another room. And there were probably another uh, few things. And this person who also had ADHD said, hey, do you think that this may be a possibility for your wife? This sounds really familiar to me. And <laughs> sent him the video, the March of the ADHD Penguins. Have you seen that? No. Look it oh, up. It's funny. Okay, I'll look it up. I'll put it so in the show So this is probably... Well, I was about 40, I'm 47 now. So it was about seven years ago. So he brings this to me and I'm like, ha ha, you know, I joke about it, but I'm not so sure that's me. And then we watched the video and I was like, oh my gosh. And we both had a good laugh about it. So then I went into my therapist and I said, hey, I think this actually may be real for me. And she said, okay, let's, you know, let's do this evaluation. So I took the evaluation and I was off the charts. Um, and I was like, okay, so this is a thing, this is real. And, you know, when you first start down that journey, and I love the way that you have described the whole process of, of the post-diagnosis process, all of those things that you go through, all those emotions that you have. Um, and I, she said, at first she said, let's start with, um, I want you to try one of those uh, five hour energy drinks and see what happens. And I was like, okay, I would never buy that crap. You know, I don't want to, you know, but it has a lot of caffeine in it. Let's just see if this, you know, works for you. And I'm like, yeah, I seem to be a little bit more productive. She's like, hmm, okay. So let's, so we kind of just slowly went into it and, you know, you start with this resistance. Like, I don't really want to take medication. What is this all about? And so began, you know, this whole journey of exploration into my brain and how it worked. And I find it incredibly fascinating. So I didn't really go through the grief part because I went straight into, oh, this is interesting, right? That my interest-based nervous system went into, let's do some research and figure this out. And let's find out what these different drugs do and these neurochemicals and all of this. And, um, I didn't, it wasn't until recently when I really started engaging with my community of women with ADHD and listening to their stories on Facebook that this was really hard 
my whole life. And that you registered I'm, for yourself. Yeah. 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 Um, it was like, okay, I have ADHD. It's not an excuse. Um, it's an explanation and I'm going to go, I'm on a mission to, to kind of fix it, you know? And, um, I busied myself with that for a long time and never really took the time to, um, grieve what the child experienced all the way through and the adult is still experiencing as being really, really hard and feeling really, really misunderstood. Mm. And now I'm kind of starting to dig that up. And um, I saw a post recently um, from someone who does coaching for parents with children with ADHD. And I'm not going to do it justice, but it said something like, um, I, you know, why did you, to her daughter, like, why did you lie about washing your hands? And something like, cause I didn't want to disappoint you. And that's, you know, I mean, it really just like tugged at my heartstrings because I felt like for me, that's how my ADHD manifested. It was, you know, if, how can you forget things that are important? Um, I did, I forgot things that were important. And when I forgot things that were important, I let people down and I couldn't explain it. And so it was easier to come up with some sort of excuse that made, that could make sense to the other person. And that didn't quite fit either, you know? So that's where the compensating starts coming in. And the masking is that I need to kind of put up this um, appearance that I've got things under control. I've got things together that I'm not going to disappoint people. And I wouldn't say I hid behind it, but in order for me to feel safe, I needed to have that so that I could really be myself, if you will. Yeah. So yeah, I'll take a deep breath. I know. Right. Um, <laughs> You reminded me of something that uh, is in an interview with Elizabeth Brink. We talk a lot about relationships and just sort of that feeling of like that you messed up, you know, that there's like there always that feeling like you are a bad friend, that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in friendships. And she said something that is so powerful where she's like, even if you forget things, even if you retreat or you don't remember to talk to people for six months or like all of these things that a lot of us struggle with, with ADHD, she's like, you're still worthy of finding the right friendships and the right relationships. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, like there's that idea of like, that's okay. If you do those things, like, it doesn't mean that you're not worthy of finding the people who get you and understand you. And I just, I don't know. I thought it was such a lovely reminder not only why it's been, why it feels so important to us when we do get our diagnosis to seek each other out, you know, because, because it's that feeling of like, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm relating to people on a level I've never related to people on. And I also feel accepted for all the things, you know, like I can come and I can come into a group of women with ADHD and talk about like, trouble washing my hands, you know, or like things that you can't talk about when you were kind of a high functioning, bright person. Um, right. And you can talk about it in a way that makes you feel understood and accepted. And people even cheer for you if you're like, oh my God, I remember to take my medication. And these things that seem like major 
accomplishments to us. Um, and so I'm, I fast, I, I love talking about community and, and that connection and how important that is to us. And I just finished reading ADHD 2.0, the, the follow-up from Ned Hallowell and, um, oh, yes. and they talk about the importance of fight. They call it vitamin C, vitamin communication. And they talk about that and, and really kind of, it's interesting because they, they talk a lot about kind of what it is about our brains that require connection, uh, in a way that I find fascinating too. <laughs> And I think that may need to be the next book that I dive into. It's really great. It's it's. I read Driven to Distraction. It was the first book I finally read after like binging on podcasts. And I was like, I really need to like listen to a book about ADHD. And that was the first one I listened to. And it was great. Um, but that was 1994. It was like, you know, it's like a, a lifetime ago in, right. <laughs> in terms of ADHD right. research. Yeah. And so this one that just came out, it's short. It's only five hours long. I don't know what that translates to pages. I so rarely read books anymore. <laughs> so I'm like, I think I in like terms of time, um, but it's really short. It's super accessible. It's very ADHD friendly and it's, it's totally stands alone. Like, it's not like, uh, I thought maybe because it was called 2.0 that it would be sort of a sequel. Um, but it's not, it's, it's a fantastic primer. It's going to be the book I recommend now to anyone who's like just been diagnosed and, and needs to see that, you know, those like, here are these lists of 35 symptoms that you might relate to. And, you know, they go through these bulleted lists and you're like, yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. Yes. Um, there's, there's plenty of that in the book. Awesome. Because the diagnosis itself doesn't give you that list. No, I know. Oftentimes, I know. Oftentimes the doctor will just sort of go straight to the medication and, and they, you know, they don't have the time to kind of unpack all of this stuff that we're left to unpack when, like you said, like that, the years of, of working hard. And then at the same time, then having to stop and honor how hard you had to work. And the, and that realization that I am actually working a lot harder than people who are doing the same thing who might be neurotypical, you know, that, that there's, what do I do with all of that emotion? You know, because there's pride, there's anger, there's guilt. There's so much of that. Yeah. There is that, oh my gosh, I had to work so hard. And then the, oh my God, holy shit. I did that. Right. Yeah. With ADHD, bam, you know? (laughs) And I think that that's, um, I, I'm grateful in a way that I didn't have my diagnosis earlier because, well, especially, you know, I was a child of the eighties back then. Um, there's a stigma attached to it now back then. I mean, it just would have been unheard of. Um, but I think that it's really, you've got to take that diagnosis and go, okay, this gives me more information. Now, what can I do with it? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And make sure that I'm moving forward with my strengths but I feel like um, that it could have held me back. I don't know if I would have attempted engineering, if I would have ruled that out for myself, mm-hmm. if I knew that I had ADHD and if I was being educated by other people who said people with ADHD tend to have a difficult time with math or they tend to have a difficult time with school. If I would have just gone, oh, this just really isn't in the cards for me or why, you know, why push myself through this, you know, path, if it's really not meant for me. Right. And so I think not knowing really kind of left the world open to explore all of those opportunities. And I ended up doing fine. 
Yeah, it is a fascinating conversation. My husband and I have it a lot when in, in reference to our kids and sort of how and when to seek a diagnosis for both of them, because I'm convinced both of them have ADHD for very different reasons. Uh, and, um, I think he's, you know, and he really struggles with like, what is that going to leave them with? Are they going to use it as a crutch? Are they going to, um, feel stigma? Is it going to hold them back in some ways that it might not have? And then I also, and I get that, like, I also wonder, you know, how would my childhood have been different? Um, especially because I tend to think of myself as being lazy and a procrastinator. Like that's how I think, Mm -hmm. I know that's not true, but I, that's how I think of myself. So if people with ADHD have a tendency to do that, would a diagnosis at a younger age when you don't have the intellectual maturity to kind of look back and think about all the things you were able to accomplish or, you know, like how would that affect the way you approach things? I think that's really interesting. And I don't know the answer. I have no idea how my life would have been different, obviously. Um, had I known and had I been treated that, you know, had I acted differently, but I do remember listening to a podcaster. I'm not going to say who it is, but uh, it was an ADHD podcaster who was talking about how she had written an an email to her child's teacher because she had forgotten something. It was like a forgot it was picture day or forgot that she had to bring cupcakes or something. And she wrote an email to apologize to the teacher. And and she was like, I'm sorry, I did that. It's I have ADHD. Mm. And I was like, really kind of like put off because I was like, I would never do that. Like, I would just never use that as an excuse for behavior. Or should I be doing like, I was really like sent in this tailspin where I was like, is that advocating for yourself? Is that is that coming up with an explanation or are you using it as an excuse? I don't know. Like, I still don't even know actually, Right. but it, it is, I think it's an interesting thing to ask, especially when it comes to like, what do I do with this diagnosis now? Um, and I've so newly diagnosed you've um, you've had a little few more years to kind of think about how it settles with you. <laughs> I have, I have, but I can, I will tell you, I'm in this huge sort of, leap forward, I think, in my, um, in my discovery and learning about my brain because of the community. So when I, um, in February last year, right before COVID, I decided that I wanted to be a professional organizer. And I got really excited about that and started going after a certification program. And then COVID happened. And the very real reality was I was not going to be going into people's homes, but I wanted to continue. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do this online and create a, you know, a membership site around, um, around organizing. And in talking to other women, I was just talking to other moms, not knowing if they were neurotypical or not. Um, and kind of trying to gather information I was finding that my brain worked really differently than other people who I assume are neurotypical. So I had a friend that was like, oh, I'm so grateful for COVID. I was able to actually finally get my house organized. She goes, it took me two weeks. And I was like, what? (laughs) Two weeks? I couldn't get my closet organized in two weeks. Like, (laughs) okay, I probably could. But I'm like, the whole thing? Like you did the entire house? She's like, yeah, finally I went through the towels and I went through the sheets and everything. I took five loads to Goodwill and I just, you know, I got it all done. And I was like, that doesn't, my, I can't even wrap my brain around that. 
Like for me, I would have to take like, let's take the kitchen and let's break it down into all of the different cabinets, all the different zones and then the different areas. And then we could sort from there. But just this like, yeah, I just went and did my whole house. So I realized I kind of, when it came to organization and productivity, I was speaking a little bit different language and that I knew I was only, that I was going to best be able to help people who also had difficulties with organization and needed um, the kind of granularity that I need in order to organize and be productive in my day. So, and of course, knowing I had ADHD, I was like, I think ADHD people are going to be my people. So I just started seeking those people out and I kind of got into the different Facebook groups and stuff. But this is, I mean, really recent for me, like in the last few months that I really started to connect with people. And it was um, the catalyst for that really was the evolution of this business. But it has been so incredibly therapeutic and healing for me to be able to really see what this looks like and really understand what we need and have a lot more clarity on, on what that is. And Mm -hmm. that's been really, really cool. So the community part, I haven't had vitamin C up until recently. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. I think it's an important part of treatment, if you will. It sounds very medical, but no, I a hundred percent I've used that I think I've used that same wording before when it comes to like, you know, when you get a diagnosis that sometimes I've often said that the diagnosis itself is half the treatment (laughs) because I think it really is just the awareness and that self and that self-awareness and this and the research and self-study that comes from that Mm -hmm. is the treatment for I think for so many of us making those connections. Why, why, why am I the way I am? Why, you know, this is why I've felt broken. This is why I felt lonely. This is why nothing ever kind of felt right. And it gives you the language, I think, to, to talk to the people who you trust and who you can be vulnerable with, you know, that's partners or parents or whatever. And it allows you, I think, to ask for things that you didn't feel like you could ask for before. Oh yeah. Because you actually have the language now, you know, it's not just that, and we're still doing some of that education in my house, you know, like with my daughter, it's not just that she would rather be on her phone than doing her homework. There's any number of executive functions that are being challenged by the task of doing homework. And here's 11, I actually wrote it out the other day for my husband. I was like, here's 11 different ways that doing homework or getting on the phone instead of doing homework is real. Mm-hmm. This is, these are the different ways that this is challenging for her. This is a different explanation for why she's getting off the phone. Yeah. It's not just a matter of, I don't want to, right? Right. Yeah. We talk about the L word in my house that <laughs> we all cuss like sailors in my house, but like the <laughs> L word is the, the nobody is allowed company. to. <laughs> nobody, but nobody is allowed to call themselves lazy. And because I feel like mm. that is like the default. And so we just, we actually just started this like self-deprecation jar, which is like, if we hear, if we hear one another talking about ourselves in like sweepingly negative tones, uh, we have to put money in a jar now instead of the, oh, instead of the swear great. jar, uh, <laughs> because, you know, it drives me crazy that, uh, because I also, 
felt like that was my default for so long. And I hear it in my kids all the time, which is like, mm-hmm. why didn't you do this thing I asked you to do? I'm just lazy. I'm like that. I know that's not it because I know you're not lazy. I have seen you working for hours on whatever fascinating thing you wanted to work on that day. You know, like that is not, that is not a word you should ever use to describe yourself. Right. Um, but let's figure out why you didn't do the thing you needed to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've tried to shift my language um, to um, more like, I noticed you had difficulty doing blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. What do you think got in the way? Right. Because there's right. something that, that got us stuck and they don't know necessarily what it is until you pose that question and then move them into that analytical part of their brain where they can go, oh, it was, I had this question and I didn't know who to ask. Oh, okay. You know, but until you ask that question, you know, instead of saying, why didn't you do your homework? In their minds, they're thinking, "I, I can't. I just, I can't. It was too hard. I can't. I'm confused. I can't, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So trying to communicate differently around that stuff so that they can actually start taking more ownership of the solutions that work for them. And that's the other thing that I have found really challenging too with other family members that have ADHD. It doesn't look the same in everybody, right? So things that I feel like I know work for my ADHD brain don't necessarily work for my kiddos. Right, yeah. So now you were diagnosed before your, either of your children, but are either of them diagnosed? My daughter is. Okay. Um, she's 13. And it, you know, took us a while to get to that point. Um, my son is not, though, you know, I definitely see some areas that are challenging for him. Um, but he's 11 and it may come. We'll see. You know, I feel like, um, I think it's important to seek out the, the diagnosis when the challenges really become um, debilitating in some way, you know? Yeah, that's actually one of the greatest, um, it's not the, one of the greatest things that happened to us this year, but I, I, it, with hindsight from the lockdown and remote learning, I have a lot of gratitude for what I've been able to see and recognize in my children's learning styles Mm -hmm. and how I've been able to help them, especially my fourth grader, because I think, you know, so many women I've talked to received their own diagnosis after seeking one for their kids. And so you didn't have that experience. I didn't have that experience either. I've, I had my own diagnosis from talking to my therapist and now it's through my own diagnosis and my own sort of self-exploration that I'm now seeing my children and I'm seeing how they're very different. Um, but how it, you know, how it is, like you said, like ADHD looks very different in everybody else. And so the more I'm learning about it, the more I'm kind of cherry picking, like, oh yes, my son has this, my daughter has this, my son has this. Um, and, and remote learning has been 
wonderful for him because, well, actually for both of them. I mean, I think they've really thrived in this because not only do they have access to me, I'm basically like his full-time tutor, uh, whether I like it or not, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a whole other topic because that was really why I ended up getting my diagnosis in the first place was because I was an entrepreneur who had to stop working because I basically had to become my son's full-time tutor. And Uh. I like emotionally imploded. And that was how I ended up getting the diagnosis. Um, But all that aside, I've been able to help him in a way that I don't think he has ever been helped in a school classroom environment. And so now I'm able to see, and I'm now able to advocate for him in a way that I wouldn't have been able to ever before. You know, like for instance, his teacher keeps talking about um, his handwriting, you know, and how important it is for him to focus on neater handwriting. And I actually didn't even realize that I also had this issue until I went back and looked at my own report cards recently and realized that I, my teachers were often talking about my handwriting. And so I was noticing how frustrated he was getting because he would have to slow down to, to focus on his handwriting and then he would lose his train of thought. Right. And he was like getting so angry about the handwriting. And so anytime it was mentioned, anytime I said, let's just take a minute, slow down, you're getting out of the margins, it's all over the place, your teacher, you know, he would just like explode with emotions. And and so I was able to kind of make that connection and be like, of course, like it went, as soon as he starts to slow down and focus on his handwriting, he can't, I mean, it's hard enough for a ninth for a nine-year-old to write as fast as they're thinking anyway, you know, like I think that's a developmental issue for all children, but it was, I could see how much he was struggling with the fact that he couldn't relate what he was thinking on the page. And then he was actually losing track of his thoughts and, and, and just getting so frustrated. And so that was like a, a place where I had the words to tell his teacher and to advocate on his behalf and be like, look, we need to, you need to pick something. <laughs> we can't. Right, exactly. Can't are we keep... working on handwriting or are we working on his thought process? Right, exactly. Yes. And and so it's it's those moments where I have a lot of gratitude for the the presence that I've had in his learning and his schooling this year that I would never have had if he was in um if he was in a full-time classroom. Yeah, absolutely. I've had some I've had some similar experiences and both of my kids struggle with writing by hand. And I don't think that teachers have really um, necessarily always understand the huge demand that is not just cognitively, but on the, you know, the fine motor piece of it, you know, holding the pencil correctly. And, you know, I mean, it's, it can be really exhausting for some kiddos. So um, what I have done and I feel like maybe there's even more of, of an opportunity to advocate for your children since they are home with you. Nobody argues quite as much as if you were trying to advocate for them when they were in a classroom that, that the teacher's running, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, I've got my kid at home here and I'm doing half this job right now. So here's how it's going to go. Um, but I've, um, I've a lot of times have asked the teachers um, for the modification that they could dictate to me. And I find that their work is far superior when they're allowed to just focus on the content and yes. what they're remembering from their reading and able to make those connections. And I can, you know, capture them very quickly through typing. And then we'll go back, you know, and say, okay, we need a paragraph here. We need a period here. We need to, you know, 
um, do that, but to actually get it all out, you know? That's so funny. I totally do that. I actually, I haven't had a conversation with this teacher, but his teacher must know I do this. I mean, I have never communicated with a teacher as much as I have communicated with a teacher this year. It feels like we're a team and it's great and she's wonderful. But yeah, I definitely do. You know, when there's longer um, projects, I will a hundred percent, I will have him dictate to me and I will type because it's faster and it drives me crazy to watch him trying to get his thoughts out. Right? As much as it is for yeah. him. Right? But then we, but then we go back and I'm like, okay, let me like take out a couple commas and apostrophes and, and make it look like a nine, a nine-year-old typed this. And I'm like, why am I doing that? I should just tell the teacher this is what's happening. Of course she would understand. <laughs> Oh, well, oh, there's masking for you, right? We're just so expert. We're such experts at masking. We do it everywhere. <laughs> let, me, let me mess with the capitalization, right? A bit. Oh this, this looks this like a 45-year-old woman wrote this. Raise your hand if you're really good with your diet for a few days or weeks, but you always end up sabotaging your own efforts or you fear having certain foods in the house because you feel like you lack the self-control to avoid them when they're there, or you feel like everyone but you has this whole eating and exercise thing figured out and you just wanna scream, what is wrong with me? Well, guess what? You are not alone. In my book, Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom, I share with you my own history with yo-yo dieting and binge eating, from my very first diet at the age of 14 to the nearly 30 years I spent on a merry-go-round of weight loss and weight regain. I also share with you the six essential steps that helped me to finally break free from diet culture and rediscover my health and my self-worth. If you are ready to break free from dieting and binge eating cycle for good and heal your relationship with food and your body, Head to worthitwithkatie.com to get your copy of my Worth It book today. Uh, okay, so now let's, speaking of school and our kids, um, I, I want to go back to your own childhood. And and I know you said you were, you didn't struggle in school and you were a good student, which I, I hear all the time, I think is very common. I think girls, so much of why they aren't diagnosed is because they tend to do well in school and they're people pleasers and they... Uh, they can pull it all together. They are multitaskers from a very early age. Uh, but what are some things now, looking back at your childhood growing up, where you think, yes, obviously that was ADHD. The signs were there. Oh, there are so many. Um, I think early on, the state of my bedroom, um, I say early on, the state of my bedroom now <laughs> is pretty much the same as it was when I was six. Um um, much to my mother's dismay, but um, yeah, I I am an absolute mess, and simultaneously quite organized, and it's this sort of strange, you know, right? juxtaposition. Um, yeah, so I would say the mess. In fact, when we moved to a new home when I was thirteen years old, my mom did not give me a choice of my bedroom. I had to be in the one that was furthest away from her. So she didn't have to pass it, you know, Yes. which of course, as a teenager, I thought was great. You know, like give me my, get me as far away from everybody as possible. And she even threatened to put a door between my bathroom and my bedroom. So she didn't have to look at my bathroom either, which I also thought was great 
and that never ended up happening, but I was like, okay, that seems like a good solution to me. Um, it was hard for her to look at. Let's just close the door. Um, that's a good solution. And in talking to her recently, she said, oh my gosh, she said, you know, I never would have known. There was no way I ever would have known. I said, of course not. First of all, we didn't have the information to identify what it looked like. Yeah. And nobody was looking for girls to yeah. have this. And ADHD <laughs> of itself says hyperactivity in it. So if you're not hyperactive, parents aren't looking for it. So, but anyway, she said, I would lose my keys all the time. She goes, I don't know if you remember, but I bought you a huge key ring. And I was like, oh my God, you did. And it was brilliant. It was this huge, probably five inch diameter, thick brass ring. You couldn't miss it, right? And in my purse, I could feel it. I could grab it. I could see it anywhere that I, you know, was in my backpack. It wouldn't get lost. And um, yeah, little did she know that was like the perfect ADHD solution for the teenager who lost her keys all the time. But then moving into college, um, you know, the self-medicating with cigarettes, I was like, oh yeah, I would go have, I had no idea that how I was benefiting from it, you know, mm -hmm. I would take a break, I would, you know, do intense work for a while. And then I would go down grab my girlfriends or go outside in the snow in Colorado, have our cigarette, get the nicotine hit, go back up, you know, be productive again. Like, I was making that work. I was also staying up all night to finish projects because I was unable to plan my time well. And um, yeah, and then we talked about motherhood. That's a, that's a tough one. And I think that's something that people aren't talking about enough is how much of a burden on the executive function system running a household is. Mm. Yeah, you know, I and also not only that, but I think a lot of women start to face sensory sensitivity within motherhood that they might not have faced mm. or, or might have better managed in life before children. Um, because there is that issue of like, you know, you're just on, you're on all the time. You know, it's like, I was listening to a, this American life episode recently about how dogs got like really agitated during COVID because their owners were home all the time. And so when owners are home, they are on, <laughs> you know, and, and so they're on guard. And so the dogs, because I don't know, like my dog was used, she definitely got more aggressive with other dogs when she was on leash for like right at COVID. And I was like, that's a weird thing. Um, when we were walking her a lot. <sighs> And so somebody was talking about how they're like just on all the time. And so they're exhausted. They're just like mentally exhausted because they need downtime when you're gone and nobody was ever gone. And, and so thinking about how animals have reacted to the fact that we're home all the time. <laughs> um, but you think about that with motherhood and babies and, and like, I, I had so many sensory issues with sound and, mm -hmm. um, and just your body, you know, like that feeling of like yes. not wanting to be touched and not, and having yes. difficulty with affection with your mate and like all yes. of these things about skin. And, you know, I think there, it gets so heightened and I didn't realize at the time I didn't, you know, I, I was undiagnosed. I didn't know what that was. I was sleep depression, you know, sleep deprivation. And then it was diagnosed as depression and anxiety. And I was just sort of like, okay, well, <laughs> maybe someday I'll get a good night's sleep again and it'll get better. But, um, I still have like real issues with noise level in my house that I don't re ever mm -hmm. remember really having when I was in college and was going to clubs and dancing and doing all of that stuff. That, and doing your yeah. homework with a live band. Yeah. Right. Well, that. you know, 
I actually, when I, I did so poorly in high school that I didn't get into university when everybody else did. So I had to redo my senior year and I went to a different, I went to a different high school and I was like, this is great. I'm going to have no friends. I'm not going to know anybody. I'm just going to study. And it's what I did. I, you know, I spent that whole year studying and I got like all straight A's so that I could go into university. But what I did was I would go to a coffee shop and I would Mm -hmm. stay up really late and like chain smoke and drink coffee Mm -hmm. until four Mm -hmm. in the morning. And I got into this habit the entire year. I came home from school. I slept from four to eight, four to 8 p.m. And then I would wake up and I would go out to a coffee shop and I would do my homework until 4 a.m. And then I came home and I slept from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. And then I went to school. And like, I did that for an entire school year. I had two two like blocks of four hour time and it it was fine. I mean, I I did fine. Um, but even just what that I was reminded of that because you had said about the loudness and I was like, yeah, I, I only ever studied when I was in high school and university in loud coffee shops and loud environments. And now I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. right. That makes sense. <laughs> right. It's interesting that you say that. Cause I thought, is it just age, you know, cause I thought, you know, my mom couldn't Maybe. stand a lot of noise and stuff. Yeah. Is this just like an old people thing? Um, yeah, I find myself really. Um, having very physical responses to being overloaded mm-hmm. since with that sensory overload. And um, I started wearing earplugs and with babies that, or just recently, no, just recently. Yeah. Well, I started the reason I started wearing earplugs was a couple of years ago, we um, went to Iceland. It was so amazing. But because the, you know, in the summertime, the sun literally never sets and we were staying on this kind of major street. I, for that entire week, slept with eye mask and earplugs in. And I was like, oh my God, this is like shutting the whole world out. And it was heaven, right? And then later I heard about, you know, these weighted blankets being really good for anxiety. And I thought, oh, I should get that for my daughter. I have since stolen it from her. (laughs) She actually doesn't find it as beneficial as I do. So now I sleep with the weighted blanket, the earplugs, and the mask, and it is absolute heaven. And I will do that as like a reset around three o'clock. And it just, you know, it feels so great to have that, that like almost like getting put in like a little, you know, sound chamber, isolation chamber. It's like so cozy. But I find that during the day, Sometimes I like to have my headphones on because it just blocks everybody else out. And sometimes I don't even have anything on. It just kind of dulls the noise, but there's a lot of video gaming going on and it causes a lot of excitement. And I really want to embrace that enthusiasm and they're, you know, playing and engaging with their friends. Um, But I have a hard time being in the same space. I know. Yeah. My husband gets like, he will get really, really riled up when my kids are being loud and bickering. And he, mm. his response will be like to yell, stop yelling. And, and then I have to sit there and be like, you re- you see the irony in this moment, don't you? And he, and he gets so worked up and I'm, and I'm like, I tuned like for my own sanity, I learned years ago to tune that stuff out. And I think actually having a phone really helps with that because I can kind of have that intimate focus with a, with a phone that helps me kind of tune out the ambient noise of my children. (laughs) And so Mm. we sort of, you know, um, and now we know, like I've said to them, like, 
you know, if you really want to get my attention and you want to have me hearing, you need to make eye contact with me. You know, like I am kind of like a dog that way. <laughs> like, you, right. you know, you can't just come in a room and start talking to me. If I'm looking at my phone, I will, I will probably say, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm not listening. So you really need to like get my, you need to get my attention and they know that, but it's, it's also like, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, like self-care. Like it's, it, my it's for the sake of my own sanity that I have long ago had to learn how to tune them out. And mm-hmm. so my husband will get all riled up. He's like, oh, I just can't stand listening to them bicker. And I was like, I don't, I haven't heard them. I don't know what they're talking about. What are they saying? <laughs> like, that sounds familiar. Yeah. The yelling, everybody stop yelling. Well, I no, think that's the, a very relatable parenting moment. That, that your partner is the only one that's paying attention to this. Do you get the sense mm. that he thinks that um, you're, I'm going to use the word checking out? That, that that's like bad parenting? Yes, this is a conversation we have a lot. Yeah, I don't want to, yeah. <laughs> well, actually we have hang him out to dry, but. No, 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 it's true. I mean, these are the conversations that we're having now since my diagnosis, I think on a much more like elevated level than we were before, because now we can kind of understand how we're different and how we approach things differently. And so, you know, and I think that comes to tidy and organizing too, which is something I want to pick your brain about because like Mm. we, uh, you know, for instance, my daughter, her room is a disaster and he'll come to me and he'll be like, have you seen her room? We have to get her to clean it. And I was like, I have a great solution to that. I, I don't go in her room and then I don't get angry. You know, I'm like your right. mom. I was like, yeah, just I just put her in the hall, close yeah. the door. And so when he said, he was like, have you been in her room lately? And I'm like, why did you go in her room? <laughs> why would you do that to yourself? Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, we have a very different approach to like the, how, what, the, to, I guess, tidying, for instance, like for, I don't find myself a very messy person. I'm very organized, but I also have to kind of be on it at all times. So if I let something go, like for instance, mm-hmm. when I lived alone, I would wash each dish as I dirtied it and I would put it away, which seems kind of a little OCD, but it made sense to me because I was like, if I start putting dishes in the sink and they start piling up, it becomes a big thing. And then right. I don't want to do it. And I put it's it off. A project. Right? right. And so I have to keep on top of things a lot. And there are, and then, and then you have kids and then it all falls out the window because you just can't keep up with mess. And so for me, then that's when we really, my husband and I really started arguing because he would take things and he just wanted them out of sight. So he would grab everything that was everywhere and just shove it in a closet because he just Mm -hmm. didn't want to look at it. And I would go ballistic because I was like, you haven't given me the time to sort and organize and put Mm -hmm. things. And he was like, you're never going to get that time. So it was going to stay there this all the time. You know, it was going to stay like this forever until you finally, quote unquote, found the time. And I don't know when that's going to be. And I can't take it anymore. So I shove everything in a closet. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that dynamic between couples is probably very common. And now I realize how much my thinking, how ADHD that is, you know, the, the, the organized chaos and that feeling of like, everything has a place and I was going to get to it. And how dare you touch my stuff? 
you know? And then the, right. Yeah. I was going to get to it. And then the other, the neurotypical side, which is sort of like, no, you weren't. I've lived with you long enough to know how this goes. And if I want it clean, I have to do it myself. And I'm just going to shove everything in a closet. And so that's out of sight, out of mind until you can deal with it. And then I'm like, well, I'm never going to deal with it when it's it's in the closet. Right. And then we start over again. So I'm curious to see as a professional organizer, like what <laughs> help, <laughs> like, I'm like, what do you do with that? What I'm sure is a very common um, dynamic between two people who live together. Um, absolutely. I, interestingly, I am your husband and you in one person. Well, that's so <laughs> I happen to be my own worst enemy and critic. Like, how can I make such a mess? I can't stand this. I can't function like this. And it's like, I sound like my mother and my six-year-old at the same time, you know, like fighting with each other. So I do what your husband does. And I take everything and I shove it into the the closet and say, I'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he tries to find something and says, we need to buy this new thing because I can't find it. And I said, but I was going to get to that. I was going to do that. And I have a 12-step process in my head for how that's all going to go someday when I have six hours. But the, the quick answer is baskets. And I wanted yes. to like start a company called Basket Case. I have baskets. That's freaking brilliant. I, yeah. Nobody can take that. <laughs> Seriously, you need to trademark that. Before, right? <laughs> right? That is brilliant. I think I actually might have a URL, but anyway, because um, I collect URLs. Um, but <laughs> I, have, I have a basket um, and, you know, they're pretty, like you can get decent baskets from Target, Amazon or whatever, you know, for less than $25 next to the craft room, the garage, like anywhere where things, you know, kind of pile up. And each one of my family members has a wire basket that has their name on it. And they all line up next to each other very neatly. That was by accident. That's how it happened. They all fit like exactly underneath this table. And so as the we're going through a week rather than, you know, say, Hey kids, you need to go get all of your stuff and put it away, which right. You know, as soon as the kids go upstairs to their bedroom, you've lost them with the first thing that they put away. Everybody just throws their stuff in their baskets. Mm -hmm. And so if it's my husband, I throw it in his basket. You know, we just all throw the stuff in the basket. Then on Saturday, when we do chores, everybody has to do their basket, right? Because there's only so much room in the basket, but it's really, it's allowed me to still have the mess out because if I stop and do the one thing, I'm going to reorganize the entire shelving system in the garage when I go out to put the thing yes. away, right? So I just, I can't do that. So I've dedicated that time to do the baskets. Do they always get done? No. Are they sometimes overflowing? Yes. But it's a system and it doesn't require opening up a lid. It doesn't require a lot of, you know, fancy labels. If it's next to the garage, it's the garage stuff basket, right? If it's next yeah. to the craft room, it's the craft stuff basket. And I want to do, I've done it with my husband and I haven't done it with my kids yet. The clean clothes basket. And I don't know why it feels like there's more laundry during COVID because I know that there's probably not, but it feels like it. And so laundry just feels like it's, oh, well, it's always felt like it's backed up, but there's all of these steps. So can I eliminate some of those steps? I have three, you know, everybody in this house is over 11. So everybody's capable of folding their clothes if they want them folded. Like if they don't care, I don't care. Right. right? So I am now wanting to get, I did for my husband, I put all of your stuff in your basket. That's where your clean clothes are. I'm not socks anymore. I'm not origami folding underwear. I, here's your clean clothes. 
if you want your t-shirts folded, you could fold them. So it's, you know, it's kind of trying to figure out how do I keep this process going so that things are actually getting maintained and you actually do have clean underwear. It's just in that basket by eliminating some of those end steps. And I found the basket just to be awesome. That's brilliant. And aesthetics are important to me. And so pretty basket shopping is, that's not a bad thing. Oh, that's true, right? We have a table in our, in the corner of our living room that is like where we put everything for the, all of the kids crap that ends up all over the downstairs we put on the table. And then it's their responsibility to clean up the table on the weekend. So it's sort of the same idea with the kids, but I think with him and I, it's mostly about like my stuff. <laughs> Let me see. I feel like we've talked, we have talked a little bit about your business, but I, so I want to get back to that because um, I want to be able to support you and I want people to find um, to be able to find you. And I think your service is so incredibly important for, especially for mothers and women with ADHD. Um, so before we talk about that, I want to ask you the question that I've been asking my guests recently, which is if you could rename ADHD, what would you call it? I would love for it to be named something that was less arguable. And I thought perhaps a neurotransmitter deficit disorder, dopamine deficit disorder. I like the alliteration. Triple D. <laughs> but the triple D, um, something that, you know, I mean, attention deficit, of course, is a, minute, a misnomer. Right. And I think that it does a lot of people disservice because at face value, you say my child or other person that I love can focus on fill in the blank, forever. They don't have an attention deficit and they're right. We don't. We right. Attention dysregulation or um, attention, yeah, attention regulation or attention monitoring, you know, would be more appropriate. Selective attention. <laughs> Selective attention. Um, and then the hyperactivity, right, really only explains one of the two, of course, there's many types of ADHD, but right now you're, you can be diagnosed as inattentive or hyperactive, right? Uh, so it's only explaining half of the equation, right? Yeah. And if you're not hyperactive, then you're likely to throw that whole thing out. So mm -hmm. I think that the disservice is in that the name of the disorder automatically gets, you know, it just gets ruled out for so many people because they don't meet what it seems to say at face value mm -hmm. and how many, you know, especially for women who tend to not be disruptive in class, not get flagged as children go into their adulthood before they even have the opportunity to get diagnosed if they have the opportunity to get diagnosed and never get the opportunity to seek treatment. And I think that that's just, it's tragic really. Yeah, I do so, too. And I think it's not even that I'm not a hyperactive. Like I thought I was, I thought I was the opposite mm. of hyperactive. I mean, that's the other thing. I think so many of us relate and hold on to the, the, the tired, exhausted, lethargic side, uh, like downside of hyperactivity. You know, the fact that like, we don't realize that there's that pendulum. We only focus on the negative. You're right. And, and so we, you know, I was like, I'm as hyperactive as a sloth, you know, like I... <laughs> I'm the least hyperactive person you could meet. 
um, before my diagnosis, because, you know, I think we just like, we have such a hard time relating to that, to that word. I think too, is that we attach, um, we think that it means being visibly hyperactive. So if you ask me, um, are you hyperactive? I would say no, because um, I don't need to get up and jump and down, jump up and down all the time. I don't need to, um, you know, go run errands just to get out of the house. But my brain is hyperactive. So there's a lot of invisible hyperactivity. And that hyperactivity in my brain is very exhausting, which is what requires, I think, so much downtime to recover and reset. Right. And I'm yeah. really starting, I think, now more than ever to really embrace my need for rest and and really prioritize it and um, honor it and talk to people about it in a different way. Like I, mom needs to go reset so I can really be there for you and really yes. be there with you. So when I do this for myself, I'm doing it for you as well. It's, you know, the whole idea of, you know, putting the mask on yourself yeah. first. It's like, I can't, can't, I can't keep going without an opportunity to recharge. And yes. I may need to do that several times a day. Absolutely. I think, yes, yeah. I, like you said, honoring it, no longer feeling a sense of guilt or shame around mm-hmm. it. And because you can understand it and you can understand why it's necessary. And then you can then explain it to the people you love in your life, why it's necessary. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that all of that, like just that change in self-talk and the change in self-realization, it's just like, I've done like a complete 180 on so many things I used to, so many things about myself, I used to feel guilt and shame around And Now I'm like, oh no, it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is why I do X, Y, Z. And to actually flip it on its head and say, you know, Um, I, you know, the wrong thing to do is to try to power through the three o'clock hour. That's Mm. the wrong thing for me to do. That's not achieving. (laughs) Achieving would actually be to know thyself well enough to know that I need to reset for that hour. Yeah. And I gift myself that. And it's huge. Sometimes it's only 30 minutes, you know, sometimes I do doze off a little bit. Sometimes I just get on, I have this wonderful game that I love to play on my phone. That's just like a meditation. And it just allows the whole, my whole system to power down. And, you know, of course, there's all sorts of science behind how much work your brain is actually doing behind the scenes, but it's making all of those neural connections. It's, you know, assimilating information and, you know, it's productive. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's totally. Right. In a different way. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about ordered organizing. And okay. so was this the first time you became an entrepreneur when you started this? Um, no, not really, because I was okay. an architectural lighting designer before I worked for someone else, um, small company, and all of them are small companies. And then when I had my daughter, I wanted to continue doing the work. And so I had a few clients that I um, did consulting for on my own. So I continued with that as an entrepreneur, as a solopreneur. Um, okay. But it was basically a continuation of something I already knew very well how to do, Um this is a whole new adventure, a whole new experience. And I'm really um, feeling like I'm at the beginning and stages of, of understanding um, what the solution needs to be for the people that I want to serve. And so I feel like I'm in a conversation 
phase right now with community. I've done a lot of learning about the science and how my brain works and, you know, that kind of exploration, but I really want to get in with the communities and engage with them and really try to understand what it, what, what it is that we want, because I hear a lot of people saying, I just wish that I had more time. I wish that I was more organized. I wish I could be more productive. And I want to dig, I want to dig a little bit deeper and have conversations and really feel, feel through that and see what that really means. Because I think that my, my genius, if you will, is in the uh, metacognition and the ability to pull all of these different pieces together and kind of make them fit. That's what I really enjoy doing. And so I think that, um, I think the solution is evolving. And so right now I'm, I'm having conversations and I do have a group right now that I'm working with. That was my beta group. And we're kind of continuing to have conversations and finesse what the program eventually will become. But um, right now I am, I started a Facebook group that is called Organizing and Productivity for Moms with ADHD. So you can find me there. And I've just hopped onto Clubhouse. Whole new world. Uh, <laughs> can't decide, you know, it's like I know, overwhelming is it the- and exciting all at the same time. Um, but I think that's going to be a really wonderful place to um, ask questions and really allow people to have these conversations and you know, ways that we haven't before. So I'm really excited about that platform. So I'm there as Lisa Piana, at Lisa Piana. Um, And then on Instagram as well, at ordered underscore organizing is my Instagram. So those three places are kind of the places that I'm hanging out the most. That's awesome. What do you find that women, mothers with ADHD um, struggle with the most when it comes to household organization? Um, Their brains. Yeah. Decluttering their brains. I'm hearing that more and more as I dig a little bit. It's not necessarily that they need to declutter their house. They really want to be able to get what's in their brain out and prioritize it in a way that makes sense and set some goals and milestones for those goals and actually reach them. And have a way of seeing that because I think a lot of times we don't get ourselves give ourselves enough credit for the things that we do finish, right? There's a lot of shame around unfinished projects, um, and you know one of the things that I do is I have a to done list at the end of the day instead of my to do list because oh. nine times out of ten I don't get done with my to do list because whatever I set out to do has been, and it's not that I just that I've got distracted or interrupted, but life happens. And it actually was more important for me to go help my son with his homework assignment than it was for me to make that call to the vet at that, you know? And so instead of looking at the list and go, oh, again, I didn't get the vet call. I didn't do this, that, and the other thing to say, oh, I helped my son with his homework assignment. Like these are things that I value and that are important. I'm not always just getting off track or just being distracted. So I think that goal setting really becomes about about clarifying the direction, then actually setting those milestones and then using some ADHD friendly ways to actually get there. And I think one of the biggest ways we do that is in community. It's being accountable to ourselves and to each other. And I found the most success with my, with the group that I'm working with is getting online face-to-face 
on Zoom and having these conversations because um, we do well when we're checking in with each other. And nobody's judging whether you did the thing or didn't do the thing, but being able to say, I'm going to do this and then follow through with that has been really helpful. I love the idea of a to-done list. I think that's so great. You know, there's something, um, I think I think a lot of us have a tendency once we do complete something, we don't have the patience to sit and like be happy with it because we've moved on to the next thing. And the challenge, the excitement is in, approaching and figuring out the task. Task completion is not exciting for us. And so I think it's in general, like there's usually almost a sense of disappointment when something is completed, you know, especially like, you know, when there's a huge project that I've been working on and I finally finish it, there's, you know, I don't think we talk enough about that sense of like disappointment of almost sort of like, uh, yeah, all right. Like I'm done with that. I don't want to talk about that anymore. You know, like Mm -hmm. I remember that with, Mm -hmm. I was very uncomfortable after I wrote my book where I was like, it was the process of writing the book and actually getting it done and being able to say I could do it. That was the excitement for me. Once it was out in the world, I was like, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I don't want to read it. Like I was like, yeah, I'm done with that. And people would be like, that's so great. You wrote a book. And I'd be like, Mm, yeah, whatever. Yeah, like, last year. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> it's like, it's and not it's anymore. Right? Like, I think, yeah. I wonder how much that that idea of, like, never really sitting in our successes is is what contributes to the fact that we have such a low self-regard, <laughs> you know? Like, if we spent a little more time sitting with our successes, maybe mm-hmm. we would actually um, view ourselves as successful people, which, because usually we are highly successful people Mm -hmm. and and there's just that incongruency with, with how we view ourselves. And that was actually kind of one of the things that my therapist was, it was a real red flag to her when I first started talking to her was like, how is this woman who has done so many things and seems very bright? How does she talk about herself? Like she's such a failure all the time. And that was, that was kind of the tip off to her that I had ADHD. Mm. And and so I'm curious. I've never thought about that before. Like if we actually took the time to really just even the couple extra seconds that it requires to acknowledge um, our accomplishments in, in some sort of structured way. We always talk about how much we love structure. Um, and, you know, I think that would probably do wonders for our self-esteem. I love that. <laughs> I think I might make like a success board. Like right. Yes. Yeah. I love to, to done. Board, Are you kidding me? You've got to the done. to done list, which is brilliant. You've got basket case. I mean, come on. You are like the <laughs> queen of puns right here. <laughs> <laughs> I do love them. Well, doesn't it make it, it makes it more like visual and tangible. Like I, you know, making these motions with my hands, but like, I need to be able to like touch it and taste it. And I think with, with puns and alliteration, you just get closer to to reaching those other senses. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. I know I love talking to you and um, I yes. loved some of you had so many great insights. So I think this will be a really um, a very popular episode or be, there's a lot to, to offer the listeners in this one. So thank you so awesome. much. I love what you're doing. Thank you for having me. I love what you're doing too. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, as you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review over on my website, womenandadhd.com, or on Apple Podcasts, or Audible, or whatever other platform you're using. 
And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom, done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower, and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. Make sure to tag me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at women and ADHD. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to know more about me, head over to worthitwithkatie.com. That's where I help other women with ADHD break free from the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle for good. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.